You may be seated. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, and I know we've kind of been uh, back and forth to this book. We're going to finish it up uh, this week and then uh, and next, so we have two weeks left in Habakkuk. Um, and then I'm looking forward to actually going, going kind of back to uh, Easter Sunday. I know it was last week, and, and uh, it was a, a bigger sermon uh, with a lot of themes in it. We had four themes we discussed there. We're going to be going uh, over each one of those themes in a sermon by itself, uh, following the book of Habakkuk. So I'm looking forward to that as well. So we're in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. Um, and I want to just kind of, kind of catch up to speed again on the theme of Habakkuk. It's this idea of moving from worry to worship. And, uh, and we've, we've kind of tracked Habakkuk. And he started out with this, this complaint, this groan over sin and uh, over what he saw in the world, uh, the violence that he saw in the world, and trying to reconcile how can a good God allow these things? And what's God up to? And is he ever going to come to the rescue and deliver his people? So we saw the answer to those questions that God and Habakkuk were having a conversation. And we've moved into, um, into, song, into, the, into a psalm. It's actually a song. Uh, chapter 3 is of Habakkuk. Uh, but we moved through this progression. And I, I just want to mention this progression. Because it's, it's really a progression or a movement that we have to find in our hearts. It's a movement for our souls to, to move from a place of worry to a place of praise and a place of prayer and hope. He started at worry and then he, he decided and he was resolute that he would, he would now watch. And that was so important that, that we can worry, but we can't stay in worry and fear and doubt. We have to come to a place even of honesty with God where we then stop and listen and watch for what he's going to do and how he's going to answer. And, and what was neat about that is that watching and waiting, there was a response from God and what God brought to Habakkuk's heart was assurance that he was sovereign, that he was in control, that, that he was going to come about and deliver his people, that his covenant love for his people, a people for his own possession, would not be thwarted. So there was this assurance. And with assurance comes comfort, right? So coming to a place of comfort and assurance because we actually listened with our hearts to God and got to know him more, brings us out of this place of worry. So he's in a place of comfort now. And, and that comfort led to a deeper faith, a more profound faith. And, and he, he said, okay, Lord, in the first, first part of chapter 3, he says, I want your works to come. I want you to do your thing. And, and I will let you do that. I will let you be sovereign. And I will wait in, in you. And, and God, while you're doing that, remember your mercy. And remember, that when, I, when I preached on that, I, I spoke that, yes, he's, he's asking God, remember mercy. But what he's really doing is preaching to his heart. That you and I should remind our own souls of God's deep, unending mercy that he offers us. I love that last song. Actually, I love all the songs we sang today. That last song, though our sins were many, his mercy is more. And we need to hold on to that. We need to remember his mercy is more. But you and I have to come to a place of faith in that mercy. And then that faith wells up in us worship. And that confidence wells up in us prayer and praise. And then what we found is we've moved from a place of worry to a place of worship. So we're, we're kind of, we've rounded those corners and we're on the home stretch here. We're rounded third, coming home to that place of real contentment, real worship. And so we're in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 16. And we see at the end of chapter 2, it seems like it's set up that God's people are in his temple, ready to worship and praise God. And I I'm excited about that. I'm excited to see what, what happens 
next. And, and so he offers this prayer, this psalm. I mentioned before that uh, chapter 3 of Habakkuk is actually a, a, a psalm. It, it, it's something that they would take just chapter 3 and bring it to worship, and they would worship using that. They would worship using that in their family. So there was something to this. Now, it's interesting as we look through this, you, you and I could, we're going to find a little bit of discomfort today as we, as we look to what the early church, uh, those who are righteous and living by faith, what they sang But what Habakkuk is doing today is he's painting a portrait for us, a picture for us to hang on our hearts, to remember who God is and what he's done for us. He's given us a reminder. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get right into the Scriptures. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy. God, we thank you that you are a God who who does whatever is necessary in line with your covenant love for us. And you will not yield, Lord, until it's complete. So, Father, as we look to your word today, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to be receptive to it. That you would humble us, God. Put us in a position of humility towards you and your words, not of pride or ego. That, God, we we want more of you today. Guide us through this text today. Guide us in our hearts. God, let let us have and cling to this hope as an anchor for our souls. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So today's message title is The Coming of the Lord. And that's that's really what is being proclaimed here. The Coming of the Lord. And so we're going to look at uh, the the reading of the chapter, verses 3 through uh, 16 together. And then we'll break that down into three sections. God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from His hands. This is where His power is hidden. Plagues or Plague goes before Him, and pestilence follows in His steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Cushion in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your rage against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brilliance of your shining spear. You march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck, Selah. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. I heard... And I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people 
invading us. Well, we're going to go ahead and and look a little more in depth at that. Now, as I read that, again, this is a psalm, and this whole chapter is a psalm, a song sung by God's people. So for Habakkuk, and as we look at this, this chapter of Scripture, it is a song for us. It should be something that we hold dear to our hearts. Like I said earlier, this is a picture or a portrait that, that Habakkuk is giving us. Not just, not just remembering the old or looking forward to the new, but, but the totality of who God is in his character and his covenantal character. We're going to see a picture of that, and we're going to see that in the coming of the Lord. So number one, the coming of the Lord shakes all of creation with his power and his covenant. The coming of the Lord shakes all of creation with his power and his covenant. Let's go ahead and look at verses 3 through 7. God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Now remember, Selah, when we studied the Psalms during the summer, this term is, is one of those terms that means, think about that. Consider that deeply. Remember this. It's profound. Now, so what's so profound about this? Habakkuk is giving this song, this psalm to God, but to the people to sing to God. And the first part of it, he's saying, God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. This is the area of Sinai. So you had, you had Moses and the Ten Commandments where God met Moses and, and there was this exodus of God's people, this, this deliverance of God's people out of the land of, of Egypt. That they were in captivity and they were moving towards, uh, towards freedom and towards the promised land. What Habakkuk is saying is remember the God of the exodus. Remember God's covenantal character and nature. Think about that. Ponder that. We must remember who God is and has been. And he goes on in this next description, describing things. And we'll see some of those passages after I read this. He's describing this grandeur, grandeur of God, this brilliance of God, this power of God that has already been described for God's people. Moses has attributed it uh, to God, and we'll see that in some of the other texts. It goes on, it says, uh, His splendor covers the heavens. The earth is full of His praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his right hand. This is where his power is hidden. It's amazing to see the power of the right hand of God. I was actually texted this morning from someone in our church, just an encouraging text and about the Hesed love of God, the covenantal love of God. And they shared this verse, and I wanted to share it this morning. Psalm 63.8 says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So as Habakkuk is writing this, this psalm, we can see in Psalm 63 that same thing, that out of the powerful right hand of God that brings these rays of light, and this is where his power is hidden, my soul clings to him and his right hand upholds me. Now, as we go through this and paint this picture, this picture is being painted for those who would choose to live by faith. The righteous, remember, will live by faith. And, and as we go through this, there's, there's probably many ways to look at it, but I think there's two different perspectives that we're going to see and that we can kind of see where people's hearts might go. And maybe it's a test for your heart. We're going to see one, one area that, that people are going to look at this and be like, this is a little bit harsh to me. I'm not finding much encouragement here. And the other side is, is a place where we will find encouragement. And what we see is there's people that live by faith and there's people that live in denial of God in denial of his covenantal love who are faithless if we are faithless this is going to be 
not a beautiful picture of hope, we're going to have some distress in our heart. We may even push it away farther. But I would encourage you, implore you, that this is hope-filled. Today as we look through this, this is a psalm of hope and deliverance for God's people. The people who are putting faith in God and who are righteous are living by faith. So to the faithful, they would say, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. To the unfaithful, the power of, of shining light rays out of his right hand should scare us to death. He goes on. Verse 5. Plagues go before him and pestilence or fire follows in his steps. So we, we sung a song to, or today, that holy fire, right? There's, Paul talks about this refiner's fire that's going to come. When the Lord comes, he's going to refine us by that fire. And, and everything that was the ill intention or bad motives of our heart, the sin in our lives, that's that wood, hay, and straw will be burned away. And those things we did for his glory are those precious gems that will be refined. And I, I want to be found faithful when he comes. And, and before he comes, I want to continue to be refined. I want to let his presence in my life and burn away those things, those areas of my life that are disobedient to him. It says he stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. And then he bookends this section with, with that same region of Sinai, with the, with the distress that was put on his people. He says, I see the tents of cushion in distress, the tents, uh, tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. He's saying, remember again the distress that was caused. Now remember the deliverance offered by God. Not only that has been accomplished, but that will be accomplished. It's very important as we look at this passage. The prophet is giving praise to God over the promise of his coming. And he's not merely describing past events. And he's not only proclaiming future ones. He's giving both so that you and I have this broad, expansive picture and an expressive portrait of the covenantal saving character and power of God. Because of this portrait, he and the rest of those that live by faith can express a faith filled praise to God because their hope is in Him. Again, this should be a portrait that we hang on our hearts as a reminder of God's deliverance and that God ultimately wins. Basically, Habakkuk saying, just as he defeated the Egyptians and how he provided for his people in the wilderness and brought them into the land, he will again judge the wicked and deliver the righteous, those that live by and express Faith in Him. Again, there's two ways to hear this. One way is of the faithful who have expressed faith in God and His deliverance. The other way, way to hear it is as faithless. But this is about God's covenant. That God would pursue and gather a people for His own possession. The issue is that some are resistant. Many are resistant to that. So let's continue with this imagery. I want to give you some more imagery because Habakkuk, when he's painting this picture, is bringing in other images. Um, I, I enjoy painting. I don't do it very often. Actually, I haven't done it for a long time. But in high school and right out of high school, I, I did acrylic painting and oil painting and I did watercolor painting. And I remember in my high school classes when I was taught to paint, my instructor would come and say, okay, let's, let's see, what do you want to paint here? And he'd, he'd have like these, these binders of images and photographs. He, he went out to the, the wilderness, to the forest, and he took tons of pictures. 
So if you wanted certain trees or certain meadows or certain streams or certain creeks or certain mountain ranges, you could look. And what we did is we would take this mix, mismatch of pictures and, and, and create a scene that we thought would be a beautiful painting, a beautiful picture to depict. And, and it's kind of what Habakkuk is doing here for us. He's pulling these parts and essences of who God is and pulling them together for us so we have this image of God's character to hang on our hearts. So I'm going to go through some other texts where we see similar things that Habakkuk is describing in chapter 3. Deuteronomy chapter 33. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, gave to the Israelites before his death. The Lord came from Sinai and appeared to them from Seir. He shone on them from Mount Paran and came with 10,000 holy ones, with lightning from his right hand for them. You see, this is where Habakkuk is drawing this imagery from, from the past and from the description that he has of God. And he's giving this to his people as God's covenant character and nature. And then verse 3, he says, Indeed, the love, or indeed he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand, and they assemble at your feet. Each receives your word. Here's God's covenant power going forward again. Moses gave us instruction as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. This is that covenantial possession. God gives us instruction to be a people of his own possession. Remember God's covenant love and character. In Exodus, we see this idea of the same word where rays shone or out of the light, light out of his hand described with Moses. He, Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, and he descended the mountain. He did not realize that the skin of his face shone. It was the same word, the rays, as a result of his speaking to the Lord. See, the presence of God brings about this light, this power, and this covenant of testimony. Psalm 50, verses 1-6. through six. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. From Zion, the perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. This is that powerful glory that we see. In verse 3, it says, Our God is coming. Right, The coming of the Lord. Our God is coming. He will not be silent. That's interesting to know. This is a very important part of our picture that he's painting for us. God will not, he's coming and he will not be silent. Everything will quake before him. People will be judged by him. He will not be silent. It goes on, devouring fire precedes him. And a storm rages around him on high. He summons heaven and earth in order to judge his people. Gather my faithful ones to me. Those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God is the judge. Selah. So important to see this. Again, this movement of God and his covenant character and nature pursuing his people. There's this power and there's this, this covenant judgment even there. There's this deliverance for his people. Now here's what we can't think, because if we're on these two sides, and we're on that side of the faithless, the side that says, well, I don't really believe that there's this God, and, and it's kind of weird, I don't want to hear about judgment. That's the hard part, because here's the deal. God is coming, and when he comes back, he's not just going to gather his people and go to a remote island and stay out of your hair. He is God. And when he comes, it says, the Lord is coming. He will not be silent. He created this, and he, he gathered for himself a people for his own possession. So when he returns, 
any and all that oppose him will be wiped out. He will not be silent. And for, for those who live by faith, that is deliverance. That is, that is freedom to live as we were intended to live in the presence of God and with God as our king. And the last part said, God is the judge. Selah. Think about that. Embrace that. That he is the judge. All of creation must obey and nothing should or can get in the way. Now that is encouragement for the believer. That nothing is going to get in the way of God's covenantal love for his people. Oh, that you would be a people for his own possession. Oh, that you would trust Christ at, for, by faith and be counted as righteous because of Christ. And that when God comes, that we would be on the right side of that judgment. We would be on the right side of that called deliverance. We would be delivered by our mighty God, for he is the judge. So we've seen that when the coming of the Lord comes, it, it comes with covenantal power. That's number one. Number two is this. The coming of the Lord, he will judge the nations and save his people. He will judge the nations and save his people. Again, there are two ways to look at this, right? We've got to re reiterate this. On one hand, there are those who are, who are full of faith. On the other, there's the ones that are in denial. On one hand, there are those who are faithful. And on the other hand, there are those who are faithless. And on one hand, there are those who are friends of God. And on the other hand, can you guess what it is? There are those who are God's enemy. You see, there is no middle ground here. Let's go back to our text in Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to read verses 8 through 15. The first part of that, 8 through 11, is this relationship with God has with, with the creation, that there's these birth pains, these groanings that are happening. And it almost appears that as the earth groans, that God's judgment is being poured out on the earth. Let's look at this in verses 8 through 11. He says, Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your rage against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Selah. Going on, he says, You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flashing of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. So he's coming to judge the nations and save his people. And the first part of this praise is, is asking this rhetorical question. God, we see this, the, the seas split apart. We see you raging against the earth. Mountains are shaking. And are you angry at the rivers? And the rhetorical answer is no, he's not. But he's using his creation even to, to display his power and to show his judgment against his enemies and the enemies of his people. That's what he's doing. All of the cosmos and creation long for this redemption, this restoration that God will bring about. But God is, is, has power over all of it and they all submit to him. Going on in verses 12 and following, I really want us to be clear here. There's judgment to be had, and there's a scene of judgment, and we're going to go into some deeper things we see in, in, in Isaiah and in Revelation. But we have to remember this. As we talk about the judgment of God and the wrath of God, what we understand is that although our sins are many, His mercy is more. 
And we cry out for him to remember his mercy. And what did that look like? Here's what it looked like. We have to remember first that the wrath of God was placed on Christ's shoulders for us. Isaiah 53 tells us that it was, God was pleased to crush Jesus for us. He was crushed because of our sin and he was crushed for us that we could have life in him. That wrath, that judgment was poured out on Jesus for us so we could experience by faith deliverance and, rege- and redemption instead of judgment. You see, there's the mercy of God. People say, don't preach hellfire and brimstone. Right, don't only preach that. We must show that there's the mercy of God, that in God's covenantial love for his people, he says, I'm merciful. In fact, I, I became flesh, God became flesh, and died on a cross to take that judgment upon himself, the judgment that we were meant to have on our shoulders. He paid the penalty that we owed so that you and I could have life and be free, that we'd experience deliverance and redemption instead of judgment. And there, but there are two ways to see and hear this, right? One is that we've expressed faith in the, in the finished work of Christ. We've, we've let His payment pay for our sin. And, and in, in doing that, He has given us His righteousness. And we are now friends of God. But on the other side, if there are those who have rejected Christ and pushed Him away and pushed Him out of the picture, they are not friends of God. They are enemies of God. So let's look at verses 12 through 15. You march across the earth with indignation, and you trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. And we'll stop there for a minute. Again, he's coming out to deliver and to save. He's not trying to pull people out and, and again, create a little island that's his own. This is his whole world, and he will not settle until everything that's his enemy is gone and out of the way. He comes to save his people and to save your anointed. Now some translations here and some, some people, commentators would say this is maybe uh, to save the line of a king or, or to establish kings that will direct well. But, but a lot of them say this is actually to save the line of the anointed one, the Messiah. Again, in line with his covenant that the, he is going to produce and give us the Messiah who will be the ultimate redemption for his people. So everything he does is in line with his covenant of bringing forward the Messiah so that you and I could have life through his name. And his name is Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, You crush the leader of the house of the wicked. You strip him from foot to neck. Selah. So important to understand and think about this. This is a prophecy going back to Genesis chapter 3. If you read on in that verse, not only strips him from foot to neck, he says, You pierce his head with his own spears. Genesis 3.15 talks about this promise after, after Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. What we see there is God coming forward and saying to Satan, saying, listen, this isn't going to happen. I'm going to defeat you. The seed of the woman that was deceived will ultimately come, and although you bruise his heel, he will crush your head. See, the Messiah, the anointed one, the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3 is Jesus Christ. And he will give a fatal blow and a final blow to Satan. And he will be defeated. This is showing that, that there's a day coming when when the enemies of God will be given a fatal blow. He goes on, his warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. 
Again, this passage as a song is about deliverance. God's people are singing this to God, expecting him to come and deliver them and to crush the enemy of God and the enemies of God. The question is this. Are you still an enemy of God? Are you still resisting God and pushing aside his anointed? Because God in his infinite love and covenantal character has provided you with Jesus Christ as the fulfillment for what you owe for your sins. The Bible says that you and I have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard, that we are all sinful, that we have all separated ourselves from God by our sin, and that we are all deserving of not only physical death, but eternal death and separation. But God created us to be with him and longs for that. So he has pursued us and given us a way to be forgiven, that that our sins can be removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And they're buried on the bottom of the ocean floor. Although our sins are many, his mercy is more. It's so important for us to know that. It's so important for us to cling to the promise and hope we have in Christ that he took our place and that he paid for our sin. He paid for your sin. And we we continue to remain enemies of God until we express faith in Christ and believe the gospel and are saved. We turn our hearts from ourselves and our own ego, our own pride, our own desire to be God and to fulfill our lives, and we turn to Him in faith to be saved. This fury is against God's enemies. And, And listen, we would like to think that there's a fence that we can camp on when it comes to faith. And obedience. Like, oh, we can camp out here. There's, this fence usually establishes a scale of good deeds, right? And we measure how good we are by other people. Well, I'm not as bad as that person, so surely God must not count me as an enemy. Although, and and here, listen, here's what we're really saying. Although I've rejected God, although I know I've sinned, I know I've done things that are still wrong, I haven't been as bad as that person, but although I've sinned and although I've rejected God, I still expect God to treat me as a friend. How wrong we are. That is a lie from Satan that you and I could be friends of God while still caring about our own sin. It doesn't matter about the other guy. It doesn't matter how far you think they've been removed from God. All of us have been removed from God by our sin. There is no fence sitting. You're either trusting in him in faith and living by, living by faith in him, delivered from him, or you and I are going to pay for our own sin. There is no fence. A fence is still rejection of God. A fence still makes us enemies of God. And we don't like to say that. We just think, well, I'm unsure right now. I'm still a little uncertain. I'm not sure what to do with this faith thing. So we sit on a fence all the while rejecting God. It's dangerous. When we choose to camp there, these these verses about God's judgment, about God's wrath against sin and His enemies, they stir in us some dissatisfaction, don't they? They, they make us feel uncomfortable, especially when we're camping out on that fence. I, I don't want to hear about that because now we're dissatisfied. We, we thought we were better than we were. And we come up with all these explanations of how good we are and how, how, how righteous we think we are. And God sees none of that. He only sees sin. But when we see ourselves as we, as we should, as we see ourselves in the light of our sinfulness and our eternal separation from God, then we can understand more clearly. Here, here's where it ends. We all come to a place of desperation inside. And that desperation will lead us one of two ways. 
One way is that we will, in desperation, try to fill the void we have in our heart with whatever we can. Whether it's pleasure or things, idols, more, buy more stuff. Whether we want to fill our lives with, with substance or, or addiction. We want to fill our lives with victory or success or ego. Whatever we can do out of that desperation to not feel so much in despair, we try to fill our lives with. This is one way we go. But the truth is this. We're never satisfied. We will always be empty. And we will always end. That will always end in despair and hopelessness. It doesn't matter how excited you are right now or how confident you feel right now, that will run out. What you're doing to achieve that right now will end and you'll have to put something else in its place and it will be an unending cycle until you come to that place of real despair and in desperation you go the other direction. See, the other desperation goes to this place. It goes in that place that says, I am so desperate, all I can do is look up to God. All I can do is look to Him for my rescue, for my deliverance. All I can do is humble myself, get over myself, remove those idols, remove that sin, turn my heart from that pride and that ego, and turn it towards faith in Christ Jesus. When we're in that place of desperation, we look and see the sin in our lives, and then we look up and we see our Savior. That is so, so important. And, and Habakkuk goes on here. I want to read a passage out of Psalm 77. He goes on to paint this picture for us to continue to remind us of, of this deliverance that comes from God and, and His mercies and how deep they are. Psalm 77, verses 13 through 20 say this, God, Your way is holy. What God is great like God? You are the God who works wonders. You revealed Your strength among the peoples. With power, You redeemed Your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Again, there's that, think about that. That's Selah. Think about the depth of the covenant nature of God, His character and His love for us. The water saw you, God. The water saw you, it trembled. Even the depths shook. The clouds poured down water. The storm clouds thundered. Your arrows flashed back and forth. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Lightning lit up the world. The earth shook and quaked. Your way went through the sea and your path went through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Again, painting this picture and seeing this, this amazing expressive portrait that you and I are to cling on to, that you, are, you and I are to hang on our hearts. It shows this movement of God's covenant nature and His covenant pursuit for us. Going into Isaiah, we see more of the, the same. What we saw in verse 12 in Habakkuk 3, we see this portrayed in Isaiah chapter 63. So, and, and I shared Psalm 77 because there's this hope-filled, covenantal love of God. There's this deliverance offered to God's people, to those who would express faith in Christ. But if we're on the other side in our desperation reaching for ourselves, this is what happens. Isaiah 63, verses 3 through seven. I trampled the winepress alone, and no one from the nations with, with, was with me. I trampled them in my anger and, and ground them underfoot in my fury. Their blood splattered my garments, and all my clothes were stained. 
For I planned the day of vengeance, and the year of my redemption came. I looked, but there was no one to help me, and I was amazed that no one assisted. So my arm accomplished victory for me, and my wrath assisted me. I crushed nations in my anger. I made them drunk with my wrath and poured out their blood on the ground. I know that's descriptive. But I need you to understand, and Habakkuk wants us to understand, that this covenant nature and character and pursuit of us from God comes about in deliverance of his people. And when he comes to judge the earth, again, there are two, two places to see and hear. We see and hear from a place of faith and are delivered. Or we, see a place, uh, we see and hear from a place of faithlessness and denial, and we are judged and condemned. There is an enemy. Look at verses seven, uh, or verse 7 in this passage of Isaiah 63. This is the hope. The hard part is done, and now it says, I will make the Lord's faithful love and the Lord's praiseworthy, I will make known the Lord's faithful love and the Lord's praiseworthy acts because of all the Lord has done for us, even the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, which he did for them based on his compassion and the abundance of his faithful love. Again, judgment is there. Deliverance is there because of God's covenant character and faithful love. This is his hesed love. Essentially, this is what God is saying. Essentially, this is what our picture needs to look like. <clears throat> there's God, God comes saying, there's payment, but oh, I, I remember mercy. There's payment to be had. There's judgment to be had. My enemies will be squashed and removed. But oh, there's mercy for those who have come and embraced my mercy. For those who have come to faith and live by faith. Again, we're seeing this picture being painted to increase our assurance and to increase our praise. Let me make it a little more clear for you. If you go to Revelation chapter 19, and in fact, if you see more of the book of Revelation and God's final judgment, you see the battle of Armageddon that's in the valley of Megiddo. And we see Psalm 2 and what happens in Psalm 2. We see it happening in, in Revelation as well. And, and here's what's happening. Just to be clear, when God comes in judgment, the kings of the world and every enemy of God will rage against the Lord's anointed. They, they, will, they will gather in that valley of Megiddo to fight against the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is a battle that will, will be waged at that point, and God is going to win. God will not... Listen, our picture, our painting, our portrait, an expression that we need to see and hold on to in our hearts should not have the King of kings and Lord of lords riding on a white horse with a sword out of his mouth, raising a white flag. That will not be what happens. What should happen is that you and I, we need to understand that we have been given the opportunity to raise the, our own white flag in our hearts, to surrender our lives, to surrender our hearts, to surrender our will to Him and to be found righteous and in Him by faith. If we choose not to surrender, we will be face to face in a battle with the King of kings and Lord of lords. The passage in Revelation chapter 19, verses 13 through 16 he wore a robe dipped in blood, 
And his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. Now just stop for a minute. That's an awesome imagery of Christ. It's an awesome, awesome imagery of what he accomplished on the cross for us. That his robes are stained. His robes took the blood. His robes took the penalty and the punishment. And those who have faith in Christ and now have his righteousness are riding behind him in robes white and clean. It says in verse 15, a sharp sword came out of his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. Again, all of those kings and kingdoms and people who are warring against and raging against the Lord's anointed. He says, he will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. This gives gives evidence of why he tramples, why he goes, because his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will not, again, he will not wave the white flag. He is not passive, but he has to judge sin. That must be part of our portrait. It must be part of our portrait. We must hold on to a God who is righteous in the way he judges because he has given us mercy by the judgment he offered on Christ for us. Again, it's up to the enemy of God to surrender or to be defeated. I hope that if you are an enemy of God, you choose to surrender your heart to him, surrender your life to him, your will to him, and live by faith. Finally, number three, the coming of the Lord produces confident faith. So we have this psalm we're singing, and, and Habakkuk ends it with this, uh, or, or almost ends it. We have next week to really end it, but today we'll end on verse 16. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now just think about that. What has just been described is pretty deep. What has just been described should make us tremble. There should be a fear and a reverence inside that wells up and moves us to a place of confidence because of God's mercy, because of God's covenant love for his people. He is pursuing a people for his own possession, a people that would express faith in him and he would extend mercy to them. So as we see, we, we tremble at the fact that God will come in power in his covenantal nature, that God will come to save those who have faith in him and to judge those who are enemies. And we, we tremble even that we have this confidence built up. And as, as it, the deeper we tremble, the more confident we can become because of how deeply he saves us. He go, it goes on, Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Habakkuk, what he, what he resolves, he doesn't have this complaint anymore, this worry anymore. He, in, in reverent fear of God and honor of God, stays back and says, I will trust. I will wait. I know what's coming. He will accomplish his ultimate, ultimate deliverance. He always has and he always will. And I will hang that on my heart to remember. See, he's putting his confidence into practice by waiting patiently and confidently. This section is about the confidence that we have in the one who gives and sustains our life. A couple final verses. 
Nahum, a prophet just before Habakkuk, 1.7, it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in Him. An amazing promise. We, we think, oh man, God's a huge judge. Yes, He's God. We aren't. If we aren't with Him, we're against Him. But oh, if we're with Him. Oh, the mercy we get. Oh, the, the, the deliverance we have. The contentment we have. The refuge that He becomes for us. A stronghold in the day of distress. He says, I'm going to wait quietly for the day of distress. And Nahum says, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the, in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in Him. And then finally, I want to look at this passage out of Revelation 22. It's towards the very end of the book of the Bible, the last part of the book, and last book in the Bible, right? <clears throat> Jesus speaking. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the roots and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Again, he's saying, I. I'm the anointed one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who has the right and authority to judge and to save. <clears throat> and he goes on in verse 17. He says, Both the Spirit and the bride say come. Now listen, when we see and understand the Lord is coming, look at what this coming Lord says to us. The Spirit and the bride say come. You, come. Let anyone who hears, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. You see the mercy of God portrayed here. Jesus saying, if, if you're thirsty, come. If you need life, come. I'm, I'm here for that. I'm here to extend my mercy and my grace to you. I want you to have that, not judgment. I don't want you to be an enemy. I want you to be a friend. So come and be reconciled to the Father through Christ the Son. And when we come to that place, when we come to Him, His coming inspires us. His coming to us encourages us. We, we wait for that expectantly and confidently. In fact, if you look at verse 20 of the same chapter of Revelation, He who testifies about these things says, Yes, I am coming. And then what we see is they say, Amen. Let it be. Come, Lord Jesus. This term is Maranatha. It's that term that says, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come now. We, we want you to come back. Why? Because we are in a right standing and a relationship with you that you've had mercy on us as we've expressed faith and confidence in you. We are no longer enemies of God, but friends of God. And as we hang this portrait of God's love and mercy and character and even His judgment against those who oppose, we hang that portrait on our hearts with this confidence builds and this hope builds and it's an anchor for our souls. <clears throat> so you and I can only then cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We want to let Him have His way in our hearts now and tomorrow and we are looking expectantly for what He's going to do because He always has shown up and He always will show up. And one day, in its finality, He will make all things new. And that church is worth singing about and remembering. I love you guys so much. I hope you can hold that true in your hearts and hang that portrait on your heart as an anchor for your soul. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you have 
given us your mercy and your grace in Jesus Christ. God, we know that we are sinful. We know that as we look at our own lives and our own hearts, God, there's nothing good within us. Although we, we want to pretend there is, although we want to fulfill in our own ways, we can't. God, I pray for those out there that are still resisting you and rejecting you. I pray that they would be in that moment of despair now and they would choose to understand their despair is because of their sin and they would look up to the Savior, Jesus Christ, and be saved. Father, for the rest of us who have expressed faith in Christ, we've already been to that place of despair. God, continue to well up in us a confidence for your deliverance. We know that you will deliver, that you will have the final say, but God, we will rest in you and our confidence is in you. You are a stronghold in the day of distress. You care for those who have taken refuge in you. We thank you for that. God, I ask that you would continue to help us as we see, as we've seen this portrait, that we would hang it on our hearts and our souls as a picture of hope and confidence in the Lord, an anchor for our soul. We thank you, and God, we ask and anticipate that you would come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray in your precious name. Amen.